Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome. We'll make a start. My name is Michael Willis. I had the pleasure of being the director of the Middle East Centre here at St Anthony's College at the University of Oxford this year. And I'm delighted to welcome you to what is not just the first event in the Friday seminar series for Michaelmas term, but also the first in the Friday seminar series for this academic year. For those of you joining us for the first time, the Friday seminar series is the focus of the Middle East Centre, the MEC's weekly programme in Michaelmas and Hillary terms, that's the autumn and spring terms here in Oxford. It is a series which we have held for years and decades and is really gives us an opportunity to host the most, some of the most expert and engaging speakers to discuss the Middle Eastern and North African region. We have traditionally held the series at the Middle East Centre itself, but over last year we've been obliged, for obvious reasons connected with COVID, to hold the series remotely via Zoom, or certainly all of last year. We will be holding this term seminar again on Zoom, but we plan to return to doing the series in person from the start of the Hillary term in January. Now, those of you in or near Oxford, that will hopefully come as welcome news since you'll be able to attend the seminar in person. But I also wanted to say to those of you who are based further away, we are making preparations to live stream the Friday seminar series, which means that you will be able to attend the lecture virtually. And indeed, I wanted to thank all of you who have loyally and regularly attended the Friday seminar series on Zoom over last year. And I hope that by live streaming, you can continue to join us, but we will be basically running the event both virtually and in person, which we like to think gives us the best of, of both worlds. We usually have a theme for the Friday seminar series, and this term we'll be focused on the topic of the environment and the Middle East. We have a roster of great speakers to address this issue this term, and I'll, I'll just quickly run through the speakers we will be having later in the series. Um, next week, a week today on October 22nd, we have Hussam Hussein, who will be talking on the politics of water scarcity in the case of Jordan. In third week on October the 29th, we have Jamie Furness, and he's speaking to the blue-clad Fennec authoritarian environmentalism in Tunisia and its afterlives. On November the 5th, we have one of our own community, Manal Shahabi, speaking about environment discounted energy and economic diversification plans in the Gulf. On November the 12th, Martin Biglari will talk about air pollution, toxicity and environmental politics in the history of Iranian oil nationalization. A week after that, on November the 19th, Michael Mason will be coming here to speak about failing flows, the politics of water management in southern Iraq. On November 26th, we will have a lecture on climate and colonialism in modern Palestine, historiographical perspectives, and that will be given by Netta Cohen. And we finish the series on December the 3rd with a lecture by Christian Henderson. As you will see from the list, we, we will be covering a large range of themes, countries and regions, and, and even slightly historical periods, which give us a flavour, hopefully, uh, of the topic. And I think this reflects the breadth of issues, both covered and impacted by the environment in its broadest sense. And we've tried to treat the environment in its broadest sense, because I think there is a tendency I think to parcel off environmental issues all on their own as a discrete subject and field to be dealt with separately. 
And I think moreover, the Middle East and North Africa is perhaps the region of the world where environmental issues have traditionally had the least prominence, largely because of a greater attention paid of course to, to other issues. So with that in mind, we therefore thought it might be a nice idea to kick off this seminar series by asking some of the academics based here at the Middle East Center itself to talk about how issues related to the environment relate to their own research. I know that in the past, a number of people have said that whilst they very much enjoy bringing external expertise into the center, they would from time to time like to hear more about the work and research of academics based at the Middle East Center itself. So here we have an opportunity to talk about that and talk a little bit about some of the research actually being done in the center at the moment. So therefore, I'm delighted to welcome three of my colleagues here at the Middle East Center, Walter Armbrust, our social anthropologist, Laurent Mignon, our fellow in Turkish, Osama Lazami, our lecturer in contemporary Islamic studies, all of whom will say about how the environment is fitted in and relates to their own research. I will also say something at the end about how it relates to my own field of research. So with all that said, I'd like to turn first to my colleague, Walter Armbrust, to talk about the environment in his own research. Walter. Yeah, thank you, Michael. I'm going to begin by sharing my screen. Okay, our goal is to relate environmental issues to our own research. So let me begin by reading the last paragraph of my book, Martyrs and Tricksters, an Ethnography of the Egyptian Revolution, published in 2019, just before the pandemic began. It was written in an uncharacteristically apocalyptic tone. The defining feature of a liminal crisis is pure contingency. To put it differently, we can never be entirely sure what will emerge from the void. Sometimes it is monsters rather than the angels we hoped before. I remain convinced that good things emerged along with the naked violence. It will take time for the good things to rise to the top, but rise they will, even if it turns out to be too late to save the world. When I wrote that last line, I was thinking of global warming, or more precisely, of the inevitable result of unfettered capitalism. A capitalist economy is only thought to be healthy if it's expanding. For centuries, economic expansion took place through forcibly assimilating new parts of the world into the capitalist system. But now the entire world has become part of the capital system and it's been that way for some time. There are no new unassimilated territories to bring in. The world is a closed system and therefore further expansion can only come through more intensive extraction of resources leading to more global warming. That, in a nutshell, is why there is simply no solution to global warming that includes the continuation of capitalism. The notion of market-based remedies to the climate crisis is nonsense. I want to relate this political economic dynamic to Egypt. My book was about the unintended outcomes of revolution understood as a liminal crisis. It was about the often bad things that emerge when politics become fluid rather than fixed into a normative pattern. But this doesn't mean that one can simply dismiss structural factors. The contingent situations I wrote about can't occur unless people feel a need to rise up. So one way that I have on occasion described the cause of the January 25th revolution, as opposed to its unintended outcomes, is to say that it was a revolution against luxury housing. More precisely, the deep dissatisfaction that caused Egyptians to rise up against their government in 2011 was connected to the way both the state and the private sector allocated resources in the decades prior to the revolution. 
This was particularly acute in Cairo and other major cities. So a good way to understand the cause of the revolution is to appreciate the dynamics of how urban growth is managed. As you can see on this table, Cairo has a population of roughly 15.6 million. It could be more or less defining, defining the boundaries of a megacity is never a simple endeavor. And this population is distributed over 4,479 square kilometers. But the important thing to appreciate is the trajectory of the city's growth. And you can discern this by looking at the subcategories on the chart. The older parts of Cairo, Cairo and Giza governorates and parts of Kalubia governorate, and this includes both the formal and informal housing, is where 15 million of Cairo's 15.6 million inhabitants live. They're 96% of the population and they occupy 31% of the city's space. The newer parts of Cairo, much more suburban and designed for a more affluent and automobile owning population than the older parts, has a population of around 600,000. That's 4% of the population of Greater Cairo occupying, oh wait, I think I said 31% for that should have been 69%. So it's uh, 15 million people in 69%, 4% in 31%. The point of the comparison isn't exactly just that the relation of space to population expresses a growing gap between rich and poor. It does to some extent, but it doesn't in the sense that most well-off people in fact still live in the older parts of the city. Rather, the point is that the trajectory of Cairo's growth has been towards moving out into the desert. And this has been the case for decades, going all the way back to the Nasser era. But building cities in the desert has had a number of consequences. One is that it has been a massive failure in terms of getting the population of Greater Cairo to actually disperse itself into these new urban areas. The second consequence of Cairo's urban trajectory has been that it sucked resources away from where most people actually live and put them into areas where few people live, which means more money for luxury housing, less for education, healthcare, and housing that people can afford in the places where they actually live and work. Another consequence of Cairo's trajectory is that this allocation of resources creates both opportunities for political alliance making as well as tensions. A political economic dynamic of the decade prior to the revolution was that the private sector was better situated to benefit from urban growth than the military, a particularly acute issue in the context of the transition everyone was expecting from the military-connected Hosni Mubarak to his son Gamal whose proclivities lay entirely with the private sector. That dynamic has been decisively altered in the years after the January 25th revolution. As you can see from my table, after the row giving data on the new desert cities, there's another row for the new administrative city, which is sometimes described as a new capital city, because the plan is to move many of the government's vital ministries out of Cairo and into a new mega project. This idea has been on various drawing boards for decades, but it was during the Sisi era that it was fast-tracked and repackaged as something bold and dramatic, and also, not uncoincidentally, more substantially involving the military. The new administrative city is a giant blob radiating out from Cairo to the east towards the Red Sea cities of Suez and Ein Sochna. On its own, it's intended to occupy a space of around 700 square kilometers, in contrast to the 1,400 square kilometers occupied by the existing desert cities and the 3,000 square kilometers where 96% of Greater Cairo lives. With the exception of the 6th of October city, 
all of the existing desert cities are far below their planned population capacities. A sobering fact, if you've ever been caught in a traffic jam to or from one of these otherwise opulent areas. It's a safe bet that the new administrative city will also never approach its planned capacity of 6.5 million inhabitants. But this doesn't mean that it won't consume vast resources. And this is where environment comes back into the picture. Promotions for this new administrative city, imagine it as bigger, taller, flashier, and just plain better than anything Egypt has seen before. There's a lot of talk about monorails, pedestrianized neighborhoods, and solar energy, but also golf courses, beautiful vegetation, and water features in the desert. Whatever reality emerges, the primary truth is that the new administrative capital will be another destination accessible primarily by motorized transport on concrete roads, just like all the other desert cities that have been built over the past five decades. The giant towers visible in the advertising literature, if they're ever built on the scale envisioned, will require constant air conditioning, obviously increasing demand for electricity. Egypt has great potential to produce renewable energy from hydropower, solar, and wind, and at least officially, ambitious targets for generating power from clean renewable sources. But most of Egypt's electricity is generated from fossil fuels, and Egypt's demand for electricity has been rising 6.5% a year. Egypt could meet its renewable energy targets and still end up producing more electricity through fossil fuels than it does now. And industrial scale renewable energy generation isn't necessarily carbon neutral. It requires producing steel for giant windmills, in other words, mining and generating electricity somewhere else. It involves transporting power generation materials across the globe. And by some estimates, shipping causes 17% of global CO2 emissions. It requires mining lithium for batteries to store solar generated power. The promotional images of lush gardens in the administrative capital may or may not be fantasy, but the fact is that there is no water for anything in that area. It has to be pumped uphill from the Nile or pumped up from non-rechargeable underground aquifers and transported to the city by pipes or else created by desalination plants, which can be run by solar energy, but again, it's a mega project that requires mining, transporting materials, and building infrastructure. Building concrete highways, which are undoubtedly destined to be the major infrastructural element of transport in the administrative city, causes massive CO2 emissions. All of Egypt's new cities, including the new administrative city, are environmentally dubious or even environmentally disastrous. I started off by saying that the link in my own research to environmental issues was through politics, specifically the way that resource allocation enhanced the power of some at the expense of others. In Egypt, that can be seen as a structural factor that led to the uprising of 2011, which quickly was named a revolution by those who participated in it, and which led to the assumption of power by a far worse regime than the one that was in power when the revolution began. And the CC regime has essentially doubled down on the environmentally dubious megaproject strategy that the Mubarak regime had been following. But I don't want to suggest that Egypt is exception. You've probably noticed that in my table displaying data on Cairo's population, I included a comparison with Metropolitan Omaha Council Bluffs. That's where I grew up. The point of the comparison is not to dramatize Egypt's damaging carbon footprint. It's just the opposite. 
in terms of its per capita carbon footprint, Omaha is far, far worse than Cairo. In per capita terms, maybe even in absolute terms, it has more miles of carbon generating concrete roads than Cairo and roughly one personal automobile per driving age adult. Whereas in Cairo, only about 10% of the population uses private cars. So the problem isn't that Cairo is an environmental sinner. It's that the trajectory of Cairo's urban political economy is to be more like Omaha. And of course, the aspirational models that come to mind more readily are Dubai or Riyadh, but Omaha serves just as well. When I left Omaha in 1978, the population was around half a million. It's doubled since then. More roads, more cars, more energy generated for larger and larger houses. Nebraska is an ecological disaster. And though it's never had a revolution, the urban political economy of Omaha was destructive enough that maybe it should have had one. To make Omaha what it is today required building interstate highways right through the fabric of the city. As in the rest of the US, that required displacing residents and carving out neighborhoods, particularly those of African-Americans and other minorities. The highways were a necessary condition for what we often refer to as white flight, one of the most damaging and violent trends in contemporary American history. And so my final thought is that the solution to the disastrous environmental trajectory of both Omaha and Cairo, and indeed the entire world, is political. As long as a healthy economy is seen as synonymous with expansion, all cities will continue to feed global warming. Except for a small downturn of greenhouse gas emissions in 2020 caused by the corona pandemic, global output of greenhouse gases continues to rise. That will only end when it is widely recognized that reversing global warming and capitalism are incompatible. And that recognition is nowhere on the horizon. So that's it. Thank you very much, Walter. That was fascinating, if rather, if rather sobering. But we will look out if there is a revolution in Omaha. You heard it here first. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you very much. Well, now we'll go on to our colleague, Turkish fellow, Laurent Mignon, a Turkish studies fellow. Laurent. Yes, hello. Thank you, Michael. Well, being a, a literary scholar, I, I cannot really claim that I have any expertise regarding environmental uh, questions or the, the current climate crisis. However, I, I like the idea of today's exercise inviting me to reflect on where or and how my own research and teaching that are mostly but not exclusively focused on the late Ottoman and early Republican Turkish literary world intersect with environmental concerns. I need to stress here that I am not at all aiming to, to give a comprehensive overview of the representation of nature and the exploration of environmental issues in modern Turkish language literature. Rather, what I will do today is more like reading excerpts from a logbook recording interesting instances of texts expressing what we might want to call a form of environmental anguish. As we have only a limited amount of time for, for our discussion today, my focus will be on the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Obviously, the works of contemporary novelists such as the late Yashar Kemal or indeed Latife Tekin offer vast opportunities for anyone who wishes to pursue an ecocritical approach of literature. Both have been widely translated into European languages, even into English. 
and are relatively well known beyond the flexible boundaries of what we may call Turcophonia. Much of what I will refer to today goes back to an earlier book of mine published in Istanbul in 2009 with the title Anamnete Taşınandiknotlaş. So that means footnotes moving to the main text. And this book was partly based on articles that I had written at the time for the literary supplement of the daily Birgün newspaper and a literary magazine called Evrensal Kultur that has actually been banned in 2016. One of the chapters of the book was entitled, and uh, it's a long title, and um, I, I loved long title at the time, which in English could be contrarian notes on interculturalism and the left that does not wish to become a machine. Now, those among you who are a little familiar with the work of the socialist poet Nazem Hikmet will recognize a reference to his futurist poem, I want to become a machine, from a poem which I think was, he wrote in 1923, and that was a celebration of industrialization and of the mechanization of production. But in the early 2000s, on the eve of what we call today the climate crisis, it was obvious that this type of celebration of productivity and in certain ways of the dehumanization of labor was not compatible with the type of, of slowing down, of downsizing, and what the French called la décroissance, that was required to solve the ecological crisis. As at the time I was teaching 19th century Ottoman Turkish literature at Bilkent University in Ankara, I had been struck by the fact that the expression of environmental concerns had been up to a point a significant aspect of the critique of modernization that was characteristic for the writings of religiously conservative authors, or, or, or some of them. For instance, in Tanziri Telemak, a text inspired, as the title suggests, by Fenelon's Telemak, Mehmet Sadek Efendi, who at the time had been sent into internal exile in Acre, so we are in 1870, so while he was praising intellectual and physical labor in this work, he put also emphasis on the need to respect the earth, the soil especially, and its fruits. Without such respect, the land would cease to be fertile, he wrote. Now, if we were to use today's political terminology, Mehmet Sadek would be called an Islamist, but as we know, this is not at all a very useful term. But similarly, although it has dark aspects, another religious conservative and nationalist in this case, namely Nurullah Topçu's Anatolian socialism, has a notable environmentalist agenda. Though writing 60, 70 years after Mehmet Sadik, he too shared his dislike of modernity, leading him to develop a critique of it that put a strong emphasis on the need to respect the ecosystem. But if we go back to, to pre-Republican times, it will probably not come as a surprise that it is the pioneers of science fiction in Turkish who would express a certain amount of environmental anguish. Here, I will uh, evoke the words of authors who can by no means be described as conservatives, but who drew dystopic portraits of the future world. Unlike other texts of speculative fiction of the era, these texts are not concerned about the impact of political, economic, and industrial modernization on national, cultural, or religious identity, 
and on the, uh, the future of the Ottoman state, but rather they focus on the impact of technology and of industrialization on the future of humanity. Jelal Nuri, in an untitled short story at the end of his Tarihi Istikbal, Tarihi Istikbal means history of the future, Abdul Hamid in his play Arzilash, the, the Earthlings, and Trifik Halit in his short story Hulia Boya, so this, this must be an illusion, this must be a dream, paint a pessimistic picture of the future of humankind, the industrial colonization of the seas and the oceans, the disappearance of seasons, the robotization of everyday life, the destruction of human intercourse, the vanishing of the differences between human beings and robots, between men and women, and the installation of totalitarian governments are common themes in these three works. If some developments, as such as the unity of humankind, the disappearance of ethnic, national, and religious differences, longevity, word I can never pronounce, or even internal life could seem significant advances, some, at least to, to some of us, this is not an opinion that would have been shared by these three authors. It was the end of the world as they knew it, and a world they loved. But not all visions of the future were pessimistic. We have to turn to another con religiously conservative author, namely Mollah Nazim Davud Zadeh, and his science fiction novel, Riyada Teraki, The Progress in Dream, that he published around 1915. So although the author celebrates industrialization, much emphasis is put on the absence of pollution in the Islamic state of the future. For instance, non-polluting engines that work with air and water are considered among the inventions of the new age, which is indicative of an environmental consciousness. A similar environmental agenda, but rooted on secular grounds, can be witnessed in Hussein Jahid's utopian story, Hayat Muhayel, the, 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 the world or the life imagined. The narrator retells uh, the story about a group of people escaping civilized society and building a utopian commune on a distant island. On this island, which reminds of paradise, humans live in harmony with nature. Although the social order of the, the village is based on egalitarian and communal foundations, the layout of the houses, the four o'clock tea drinking ceremony, and piano recitals tend to remind of life in an idealized English village, but somehow midsummer murders without the murders. Another problem is, of course, the continuation of the patriarchal order on the island. In this respect, Hussein Jahid's story reminds of English pastoral literature with the conservative core. Hussein Jahid's village of farmer intellectuals resembles a, a kind of ivory tower built far from the realities of a never-changing world a tower where an English teacher would be more comfortable than an Anatolian minor. And yet, and I, I will conclude here, literature in Turkish at the turn of the 19th and 20th century presents many examples that could help us nourish, not only in Turkey, a reflection on the current climate crisis. Thank you. Thank you very much in, indeed, Laurent, and for a, a wonderful example of how themes that we wouldn't necessarily immediately associate the environment. Late 19th century Ottoman history and literature are actually extremely relevant to the topic of the environment. It also shows us 
that we tend to think of the environment as being a very modern, a very recent preoccupation. But as you so beautifully illustrated, these concerns have been there for a long time. We tend to think, often I think we look on in contemporary and modern things, we think of these things as being very new, but they've been there for a while. And we like to think at Middle East Centre, we, we do history well as well and gives you the historical conception. So thank you very much, Laurent. And I'll turn to our colleague, Osama Alazmi. Osama. Thank you for sort of really giving us quite a lot of breadth to the, the subject, whether we're starting in urban Egypt today or going into the mists of history, as it were, for the modern Turkish Republic. My own sort of interest in the environment comes through the writings of the ulama, kind of a preoccupation of my own. And so I'm going to be briefly sharing my screen to talk about one of these scholars whom I've begun to explore his works. I'm starting with this scholar, Yusuf al-Qaradawi. So Yusuf al-Qaradawi is one of the scholars I'm studying. Uh, he's based in the country of Qatar, a tiny uh, country jutting out of the Arabian Peninsula, which actually, according to Wikipedia in 2013, had the largest per capita usage of energy in the world. So in a sense, it's quite a pertinent place to be concerned about the environment. And I suspect, I mean, that's the latest data we have um, on Wikipedia from 2013. I suspect that it's maintained those sorts of levels. And what's fascinating to me is the number of countries from the Persian Gulf that are occupying the top 10. They basically make up the majority. In terms of Muslim countries, Muslim majority countries, uh, you've even got, um, you know, Brunei, Dar es Salaam. And the United States is number 10 here. So Omaha isn't doing quite so bad, as it were. But I think that this brings to the fore that uh, there is a, a kind of massive inequity in energy uh, in the Middle East itself. So we have, uh, this is very well known, but the petromonarchies in the Gulf obviously have a significant amount of oil wealth, and that allows them to consume on a level that is really unimaginable for most of the world. If I recall correctly, Britain in this list falls under, so Qatar is at 19,000 uh, kilojoules of energy, uh, sorry, kilograms of oil um, equivalent. And Britain is somewhere in the range of, I think, two to 3,000. So, and the US actually, as you can see here, is around uh, 7,000, as you can see there. So uh, just give some sort of context to the amount of energy consumption that we have that said, given the size of these countries, the energy consumption is minuscule compared to the global north. So that inequity is something that um, I'll briefly allude to as well. Now, turning to Qaradawi's um, sort of book for a moment. So Qaradawi actually wrote a book. I mean, I was a little surprised, not surprised isn't the right term, but I was just thinking when Laurent described the, the 2000s as being the sort of early reflections on the environment, um, Khardawi actually wrote this book in the year 2000. It was published in the year 2001. So uh, I'm, I'm referring to this. Um, Khardawi as a scholar is now in his 90s. He's retired from public life, not really writing anymore. So this book may be a little dated, but it's one of the recent historical texts that I'm looking at just to uh, reflect on the question of the environment. And so in this book, which you can actually download the entire book from his website, he's kindly just Put it up there. I'm not sure what the copyright situation is with his, presumably his publishers are entirely aware of this. In this book, I just wanted to sort of allude to how Qaradawi is trying to draw on the Quran and the Hadith as a sort of 
traditional alim as a scholar who is a graduate of the Azhar and an Egyptian domiciled in Qatar, but someone who is uh, also uh, highly influential in various forms of media uh, over the course of his career. And it's fascinating to just, I'm going to briefly translate this verse on the top of the screen. Let me zoom in briefly. Hopefully that's going to help people be able to see it a bit more clearly. And this is a, a verse drawn from the Quran where it says, uh, you know, call to your Lord and don't be among those who are sort of aggressing. And then in a sense, this is the set of verses that he wants to highlight. Don't create corruption in the earth after it has been brought into a state of health, as it were. But it's interlinking that with one's uh, sort of commitment to worship of God and worship God with fear and with hope. Indeed, God's mercy is close to, the belief, uh, to those who are um, upholders of excellence. And then this verse is sometimes sort of quoted as explicating a kind of Quranic conception of how the water cycle works. It says, uh, he is the one, God is the one who sort of spreads the winds as kind of glad, glad tidings and a manifestation of his mercy. And then it takes the clouds from one place to another and it revives dead earth. It's a fascinating image. It's quite poetic. I'm, I'm not doing justice to it, obviously, in my uh, off-the-cuff translation. And then it says that the water descends and uh, through it, the sort of fruit come forth from the earth. And we, that's how we revive the dead, in a sense, uh, so that you may reflect. And Related to that is this verse, uh, which is often quoted in the context and the environment. And it's worth remembering, you know, this is a what Qardawi would believe is a revelation uh, that came 1400 years ago. And so uh, although historians will look at this and say, OK, this was obviously speaking to its own context to draw on uh, sort of the idea of Moshe Herbertal in the notion of having these canonical texts, which you believe to be speaking to you in every moment, in a sense. Someone like Qaradawi is saying, well, this applies to our treatment of the earth in our own time. The sort of corruption has manifested on the, on the land and in the sea due to what the hands of men have brought. In order to give you a a taste, literally, of some of the corruption, in a sense, that you have engaged in, in order, uh, it says in the third person, in order for them to return to God, in a sense. And so, um, you know, these sorts of evocative verses can be seen as quite general in their purport. But, and, and I'll just switch back to Ghadawi here, but at the same time, uh, they actually do provide enough sort of reflective material for him to develop a system, as it were, that he explicates over 264 pages in this book, and he does this relatively early. So um, I, I wanted to just start off with kind of explicating Qaradawi's um, sort of a brief, having a brief overview of Qaradawi's um, ideas in this regard. But I wanted to, um, perhaps in the next three minutes or so, if that's all right, just uh, outline in brief um, some of my own reflections on some of these sorts of questions in how they relate to Islamic studies particularly in, in their traditional guise as ulum shari'ah. So the sort of, in places like the Azhar, which is the Arab world's preeminent center for Islamic learning based in Cairo and a historic center of learning that is technically older than uh, Oxford, you know, they, they study various ulum shari'ah, meaning 
disciplines or you know fields of knowledge that are related to the Sharia in some way, uh, whether it's Quranic studies, Hadith studies, Islamic legal studies, or uh, a whole host of other sort of theology and, and all the rest of it. And I just wanted to sort of mention that a number of these fields have direct sort of uh, things to say in a sense about the environment and can be extrapolated from. And this is in a sense the the major challenge that modern Muslims are going to have to reflect on as they um, sort of respond to the environmental crisis. So we've seen some verses from the Quran cited by Qaradawi, but you have hadiths from the Prophet as well, such as a hadith where the Prophet exhorts uh, his companions, don't waste water, even if you're at the bank of a river, at the bank of a flowing river, quite literally. And in this regard, in a sense, what you have is the you know, there, there are these principles that can be drawn or that are found across a variety of traditions, principles of moderation, principles of abstemiousness, a lot of which will be expressed in Islamic law, but more usually would be expressed as values, in a sense, to use kind of modern terminology, as ethical values that we uh, would embody, that Muslims would embody in their own sort of uh, personal lives. And that usually manifests in the tradition known as Sufism or at least in certain uh, elements of that sort of a tradition. And so, in a sense, you know, these religious values which Islam may share with other religious traditions, the prophetic traditions and the, Quranic, uh, the Quran and the Hadith, as it were, will provide a lot of food for thought for people to reflect on how to engage in moderate living, kind of the opposite of the impulse of a capitalist consumption-led culture. And in many respects, uh, I would argue that those sorts of uh, traditions are probably uh, what Muslims can uh, draw on. But at the same time, given the, the status of the global South and the global order, it's not necessarily they that need to particularly prioritize this uh, as a set of values. And finally, I just wanted to highlight, uh, I mean, I, I was meant to mention this with respect to Qaradawi. Qaradawi is actually quite cognizant of that global South-North divide. He actually, um, in uh, his discussions, talk, talks about al-shamali, the global North, as being the major consumers and the, the global South in many respects, and he criticizes the way in which governments accept these kinds of policies, will take the waste of the global North for a fee and thereby uh, dramatically damage uh, the environments, the proximate environments of those countries. And in that sort of context, I think it's important to highlight, and this I'll conclude on this point, that a lot of the people whom we're thinking of, and, and this echoes what uh, Malta was saying earlier, in the Middle East region, are not really in a position to do a great deal about it, uh, about their situation, and are, you know, less the um, producers of the global climate crisis, and more the recipients of the global climate climate crisis. And that's something I think those of us in the global north need to think about. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Osama. Thanks very much for a, a, another fascinating talk. And it links in well with the previous two ones. And I think you highlight, as you, as you hint yourself, that this is a, gr a, a growing field of interest in uh, scholars of Islam about the relating to the environment. And it fits in in, in, in all sorts of other ways uh, with the sort of issues that you're looking at. Right. So thank you. Um, finally, I'd like to turn just to say something about my own research and what I, I've been working on, looking more towards political issues and working particularly at uh, the Maghreb, the, the region that I, I carry out research on. 
I have recently completed a book on Algerian politics that um, I hope will be coming out in February. And the book surveys politics across the spectrum, but environmental issues come to the fore in part of the book and I think show how these issues are feeding into a much broader patterns of politics and broader aspects of politics than actually we commonly realize. And I think this is not, not unique to Algeria, but we see it in other places. And I'd be interested to see where that, where it would spread. The part of my book in which these issues come up is the part of it where I examine unrest and protest movements that have occurred in some of Algeria's more distinct regions over the past 20 years. In particular, in January 2015, in the town of Insalat, deep in the Sahara and south of Algeria, there were protests following a visit by the National Minister for Energy, Yusuf Yusufi, to the region, who was there to inaugurate new gas wells near the city. Now, while the development of new resources might have been expected to have attracted local popular support rather than hostility, it was the nature of the wells being inaugurated that attracted substantial local ire. Euphemistically termed Algeria's first non-conventional gas wells, as the government called them, they were in fact Algeria's first foray into the exploitation of its apparently substantial shale gas resources. As we know, use of a technique of fracking to eventually extract these resources had provoked global controversy over its alleged damaging effect on local water resources and possible provoking of ground tremors. Environmentalists, activists in Ansalar, many of whom actually worked in the oil and gas sector locally, which I find very interesting, the fact that these were people who were very familiar with energy issues and therefore much more aware and informed about the sort of the negative side of things. These weren't uninformed activists. These were people very engaged actually in the industry themselves. But many of these activists were the first to raise vocal objections to the plans against the wells and were able to mobilize a thousand local residents to protest in the days that followed the minister's visit. Now, these protests grew over the days and weeks that followed, soon drawing an estimated 15,000 people to them in a city with a population barely twice that number. So nearly half the population came onto the streets to protest against the uh, potential of fracking. Moreover, large supportive demonstrations were held in other southern towns and cities, mobilizing an estimated 4,000 people in the city of Tamanrasset, 5,000 joining a march in Wagla, where activists had begun to mobilize against shale gas exploitation the previous June. There was particular resentment in these demonstrations that the fact that the Algerian authorities had allowed a specifically French company, Total, to test unconventional extraction techniques. And these techniques were not permitted in France itself. Now, this has resonances not just in the fact that France, of course, was the former colonial power in Algeria, but much more significantly, it was the south of Algeria where the French had been permitted to carry out nuclear weapons tests in the 1960s. And thus the return of Total evoked very important and very resentful memories amongst a lot of the population of the south. This French involvement did, did allow protesters to characterize the fracking as a neo-colonial project and thus frame their movement as one protecting national sovereignty. Environmental concerns and activists spearheaded the protests, as we've seen, over these, the inauguration of these projects. But they tapped into widespread concerns, uh, uh, broader issues of marginalization and the absence of benefits experienced enjoyed by people of the region in the exploitation of these local, uh, rich local resources. Protesters argue that despite the strategic importance of the region with its gas and water resources, 
Actually, Insulae is next to one of the largest reservoirs in the Saharan Desert. There had been little development in the region and even the exploitation of conventional gas had brought scant local benefits to a local population. Even though these were things that were exploited locally, local people saw very little. And referring to the perceived environmental damage fracking for shale could do, one local activist argued, shale gas will take what little we have and we don't want it. Now, the combined pressure of the protests likely contributed to the dismissal of the architect of the shale gas project, Energy Minister Yusuf Yusufi, in May 2015. So it did cost him his job, ultimately. And such was the popularity of the, uh, of the protest that other groups and activities became involved. And they prompted the, an attempt to hold the first major protest by opposition groups and parties in the capital Algiers since the Arab Spring. Now, very interestingly, other slightly more unusual political groupings also began to be seen to involve themselves in environmental issues and could be seen as jumping on the bandwagon. There was an attack in March 2016 on a gas facility at the city of Insalah by what was the largest jihadi group in the region, Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb. And this group, rather unusually, justified the attack on the, on the gas facility as an attempt to protect the environment and discourage further shale gas exploration. So you were getting the jihadis coming in on the environmental issue. Now, it was rather implausible that this was claimed, but I think it's perhaps better explained by Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb's desire to align itself with a major local grievance, but it does show the power of these grievances. However, such an endorsement was not welcomed by the main protest movement, as you can imagine, because it then subsequently had to fend off inevitable official accusations of somehow concerns about the environment were about terrorism. Every time we find too often in the region that there is a movement that the authorities don't like, they try and link it to terrorism. And this was the routine certainly for this. However, as a result of all of this pressure, the authorities announced that the exploitation would be delayed for a number of years, perhaps five to 10 years. But following a successful campaign of repression and co-option of the protests, they receded and the shale gas initiatives were revived in late 2017. However, the protests themselves were revived in the context of a huge national protest movement, what became known as the Hirak, but developed across Algeria in 2019. Uh, it uh, secured the, the resignation of the sitting president, Aziz Bouteflika, an enormous crisis in Algeria. And one of the weekly protests in January 2020 was explicitly devoted to calls for the government to abandon its plans to exploit shale gas which were condemned in the protest. There were banners and chants that week. That was the theme of the weekly protest. And uh, they argued, but what was really happening, there was an attempt to sell Algeria to multinational corporations and especially the French. So overall, in this way, we can see that environmental concerns have found their way into wider politics through expressions as diverse as the MASH national protest of the Hirak, which dominated, and rather surprisingly, Al-Qaeda's franchises in the region. So that gives you a, hopefully a, a taste of how it's affected Algerian politics in quite perhaps some more unusual ways. Now we have just about a few minutes left to raise any questions that anybody would have or if any of our, our speakers want to contribute. If you would like to have a question, you, there is a question and answer panel you'll see on the screen. If there is anything you'd like to ask, do please put a question in.
Now, I see there is one question that's come through. I can just look at that one. It's from Emre. Welcome, Emre. How are you? Yeah, good. How are you? Thank you very much. My question would be to Professor Lorne, actually. Th thanks very much for this wonderful talk and for this brief survey of kind of depiction of environmental like, concerns as reflected in Turkish speculative fiction. My question was, if Professor Lorne sees a utopian impulse and a revitalization of utopian blueprints in Turkish literature, especially in literary dystopias that illustrate environmental and ecological breakdown. Thank you. So I think you're probably referring more to now recent fiction. Yes, uh, fiction in 20th and 21st century, like, but I mean, as also kind of, as you referred to kind of the beginning of 20th century, yes. Yeah, I mean, the, the post-2000s more generally in, in the Turkish literary world have allowed the development of a whole series of, of genres and of, of genre fiction that have been very much marginalized before then for a variety of reasons. And certainly speculative fiction, science fiction, dystopic fiction is one of them. And in the context of these developments, quite naturally, the, the question of the environment is quite high uh, on the agenda. So I, I would say more, more than ever, probably. Thank you very much. I, I suppose this is something we can <laughs> talk about because I know you work on those topics. Yes, yes, thank you very much. Thank you very much for your question, Imran. I'll draw the session to a close then. I just want to thank our speakers and thank you for joining us. I hope what it's, it, the session has done a number of things. It's shown that the concerns about the environment spread across a whole range of aspects and dimensions of the Middle East, and that the way we understand the Middle East and North Africa, the Middle East Centre, taps into a lot of those concerns, and the way we look at the region more broadly, even beyond environmental issues, varies in different ways, but there are many, many common themes coming through, and we can see those themes coming through. Concerns about local communities, about not having control over what is happening, concerns about the rate of technological change, that changes wrought actually bring benefits that local people don't see, these are perennial concerns, and I'm sure they'll be brought up again and again throughout the programme as we with the speakers. We will be starting the series with the individual speakers. Please join us this time next week at five o'clock for Hussein Hussein, who will be speaking on Jordan and water. And I wish you a good weekend and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Bye bye. <laughs>